0: Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Delivering the message, his name is Stu Streeter. He's the lead pastor of our sister church, Disciples Church, here in Folsom. And he's also the vice president of church planting and ministry advancement at NAB. So at this point, would you please welcome a good friend of Oak Hills, uh, Stu Streeter? Manuel, thank you. Uh, someone do you want your coffee or do you want me to drink it? Manuel and I had a conversation offline that I should not drink any more coffee today or my 30 minute talk would turn into a 50 minute talk which made him a little nervous, which made me a lot happy. So good, good, good to be with you. Uh, thanks again, Manuel, for uh, your kind words and uh, just a delight to be with you guys today. Thanks to uh, Mike for the invite. Thanks to uh, Kent Carlson, who, uh, whether you know it or not, for years has been a lifeline to my soul uh, in a lot of different ways. And Kept my ministry out of the grave, kept my marriage out of the grave, kept my life out of the grave. And uh, that is no exaggeration. So thank you. Thanks to Oak Hills for the uh, role that you've played in this city for a long, long time. A long obedience in a beautiful, beautiful direction. So it uh, seems only fitting to me that you would be in a series at this time and space called Soul Stirring Stories. After all, you have been catalytic in stirring the souls of people in both Folsom and frankly all around the world for at least three decades that I know of. And even in the moment as we worshiped, I sensed sort of a shift in the atmosphere, if you will, as we sang, how great is your love? As we declared that we have been changed by the power of the cross and that in that declaration, whether we meant it in the moment or whether we were just seeing it because it was the word on the screen, we are declaring that we submit to God's desire to shape us and change us. If there's any chapter to explore in the topic of soul-stirring that would encourage you and embolden your mission in Folsom and around the world. Quite frankly, I think we could probably just gather up all of the different people whose souls you've stirred over the last three decades, plunk them all in a room, and hand the microphone beginning at one corner and move to the other. And I believe the encouragement that you would hear By the ways in which you have stirred the souls of many would be enough to get you through a good long time. Your partnership in the causes of God's kingdom have been significant. And for that, you should take great pride. Last week, Mike invited you and us, as I was a listener merely last week, but invited us to take a long walk and intentional time at the table. To see another soul-stirring story. If you missed it, I'd really encourage you to listen in to Mike's challenge last week that really began or set up in so many ways the direction in which you're headed this fall. And so in line with that, today I want to invite you to maybe peer through the window of a man on the run. A man on the run in ways in which we all are, in times, running from God. Even, quite honestly, when we don't know we're running from God. And in the midst of our running from God, there are opportunities for our souls to be stirred. And frankly, and more importantly, for our souls to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Would you pray with me as we continue This morning, Father, Son, and Spirit, we approach your throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we will find grace and mercy there. We stand on that promise and we enter that invitation. Teach us your way, O Lord, in these moments that we might walk in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah chapter 1, as we just read, begins with the Lord's call of Jonah. I begin in verse 1 to just recap as he invites them to go to this great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness had come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed to Tarshish and he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish. To flee from the Lord. That might be worthy of underlining. I don't know where your life with God finds you today. Maybe you're as close as you've ever been. Maybe you find yourself a hundred miles away from Him. But you are not the first to pay the fare that life charges you to flee from God. Verse 4, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break apart. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, small g God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck, where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. This is mind-blowing to me. This is fascinating to me. And I, I have to fight my urge to look at Jonah and to cast and pass all kinds of judgments on him. And yet I hear the whisper of God inviting me back in to say, uh, Hey, Stu, <laughs> you're Jonah. Because the truth is, on the run, we sleep pretty well. What do I mean by that? I guess two things, really. I mean, maybe 15, but I've only got time for two. Firstly, I I think this reality that we sleep pretty well on the run from God, I think we would be wise to avoid using our stress, our worry, those seasons of sleeplessness in our own lives as a gauge for what is worthy of paying attention to in our souls. Too often, I imagine that if it's important enough for me to worry about, God will bring the stress off. Some of us have worried day and night about things that were not worthy of 30 seconds of concern. And others of us, I'm guilty in this camp, have so skillfully buried our heads in the sand that the proverbial Titanic could be sinking beneath us and we would be pouring champagne on the patio. You see, the the dirty little secret here, and it's one that if you've been around Oak Hills any period of time, I, I know that you know it and have lived it better than most, but the dirty little secret is we all have a pretty complex and intricate system for managing our own pain and stress and fear. And we have a pretty complicated and well-fashioned system to ensure that we get what we want. In Jonah's case, his management involved getting on a boat and sailing away from his fears. But our refusal to enter in graciously to difficult conversations, our Our deep sighs when we hear something we don't like. Our rolled eyes. Our endless pouting. And especially our anger that explodes on the ones whom we love the most. These are all indicators that we are on the run. We're all runners. We all run away. And the truth of it is this, that most of us are running away in avenues and in a fashion that is as obvious to our watching world as it was that Jonah had got on a boat. It's been nearly 10 years since Jen and I and a very small group of very foolish friends gathered in a living room, and decided to plant Disciples Church in Folsom. The first couple of years were difficult for us. Like, really difficult. Like, the hardest years of my entire life. Way too many staff people left, and left in a rage. I had always dreamt of having a blog written about me, uh, until I had a couple. Right? Right? We walked through way too many divorces among couples that we thought we would never have those conversations with. I buried way too many young men in their 20s, in those early years. So by year three of this small and fledgling little church plant, my family had left everything we had on the field of play that those of us in the biz, if you will, call church planting. Our evenings had been sacrificed for the church. Our retirement accounts had all been drained to fund the church. Our friendships had all been leveraged for the church. And we found ourselves, by the middle of year three of this church plant, completely and totally empty. You see, we, we thought that leading in the local church would cause our souls to enlarge. And yet what we found in our running was that it had actually caused our souls to shrivel. And we were just completely out of gas. Our marriage had deteriorated to a terribly unhealthy place. And I remember in the darkest of those days, Jen and I would lie in bed at night And we would talk in the dark, some very detailed and explicit conversations. We would lay there with all of the lights out. Our kids were small at the time, finally got them to bed. And we would lay in bed and we would pick up the conversation so many nights, right where we had left it all, the nights prior, where we would dream about packing our kids up in the middle of the night, loading the car with just enough stuff, and driving east until we got to, of all places, and I don't know why, but Nebraska. I think because we figured nobody actually lived in Nebraska. Neither of us had ever been there. If you're from Nebraska, I mean no offense. But that was our place we were going to go. We were going to load our kids up and we were going to drive in the middle of the night. And we were going to tell nobody that we left. And as the months went on and this fantasy began to get legs, we had devised how we would get driver's licenses and new names and how we would earn a living and what sort of ghastly story we would tell our kids to explain away our lapse in sanity. As you might imagine, we never did call one another's bluff in that dark season. We didn't get up and load the car, but I can assure you that my soul was so far from being stirred by God that if Jen had so much as moved a leg towards the edge of the bed, I'd have been warming up the car. Something about that internal need to run. It seemed then and it seems now so completely and utterly incongruent with the words and the teaching and the heart of Jesus. He begins to prepare to send out His disciples. And in Matthew chapter 11, He says these famous words, Come to Me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy to bear and my burden that I give is light. Whew, right? Right? And if we sit in this for any extended period of time, often a painful period of time, but if, if we will sit in this, the truth of Jesus and the deep joy of His presence begins to wash over us. Thomas Kempis writes in his book, The Imitation of Christ, When Jesus is near, all is well, and nothing seems difficult, but when He is absent, all is hard. When Jesus does not speak within All other comfort is empty. But if He says only a word, it brings great consolation. And I would submit from my own experience and from the experiences of so many others who I have walked with in this city and so many experiences of the courageous women and men of Scripture who have done the same, That God has a miraculous way of showing up in these moments of deep dependence and trust in Him. But the truth is, most of us either manage these moments of runaway with deep sighs or that childish pouting, some snarky Facebook post, angry words. These are all our attempts to simply retreat. So you conquer the video game or... Your grandkids get picked up, you commit yourself that much more to your work, or the bottle of wine is empty yet again, the Amazon cart gets so full of things that you think will make you happy that you laugh at yourself, and all of a sudden in that moment you're rattled awake to the realities that you have been escaping for the last moments, sometimes months. Well, Jonah was awoken as well, as you know. Verse 7 continues. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find who's responsible for this calamity. So they asked Jonah in verse 8, Tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? Who's your country? From what people are you? And he answers, As you know, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. They're terrified and the story continues on as they try to find some way to not cast him into the sea. But eventually, as you know, they do. And the Lord provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah awakes to what truly is And the story presents us, at least in chapter 1, with a cute, neatly wrapped little moral, right? Jonah realizes he's been a bad boy, he jumps in the ocean, the storm stops, pagans turn to God, God protects Jonah, they take an offering, everybody lives happily ever after, right? But you know as well, as I know, we, we can't get everything turned right side up on the outside, Without dealing with the fact that we are still the same person on the inside. We may have dove into the sea to escape the scenario, but we're actually still the same person who was asleep in the hold five minutes prior. You see, inside the whale provides us moments for inner transformation. Adam and Eve had their time in hiding. Jonah had his whale... Abram had Egypt, Israel had the wilderness, Paul had blindness, and the church had a scattering. And in all of these experiences, nobody would wish to remain there for long, but if they will, and if we will be courageous and remain there, the Holy Spirit has a way of doing things in and through us that only He can do. This solitude, it creates space. It opens us up for experiences to stare down who we actually are. In his book, The Way of the Heart, one that many of you will be familiar with, Henry Nouwen writes, The solitude is the place of purification and transformation. The place of the greatest struggle and the greatest encounter. The place of salvation. I can't speak for all of us, but it's easy in my life to see these times in solitude, these moments in the belly of the proverbial whale as a clear time of purification. Oftentimes as well, as a purely a time of salvation. Thank you, God, for rescuing me from that dark moment. But in the relief of being saved, of being spared from being caught with your Amazon cart full of $10,000. Or being caught drifting off in a work meeting. Thinking about how you would load your car for Nebraska. In the midst of the salvation from those moments, I have settled so often for salvation when I believe what Jesus wants to do is transformation. You see, the deep joy at the table with Jesus as you experienced it last Sunday is wonderful. But it is stripped of its power if it does not lead you to reconcile with that one across the table for whose politics you cannot stand. Too often I've been so encouraged by the moving of the Holy Spirit that I forgot to cooperate with His development of the fruit of the Spirit. Jonah swallowed up. In and, and Jonah 2, he prays a beautiful prayer of salvation to God. It's awesome. You should read it. Heartfelt, beautiful. Chapter 3, he continues with what I would call in air quotes, good behavior. He goes out, he does what the Lord called him to do, he speaks the message of repentance to the people of Nineveh. And it would seem, yet again, in a perfect moral of the story is given to us in chapters 2 and 3. For after all, the, the king of Nineveh leads his people in a season of mourning and repentance and they, they turn from their wicked ways and they turn back to God. But then chapter 4 reveals in Jonah who Jonah actually is. And this part of the story is typically left off of the felt boards in Sunday school, right? We don't really know how to do that part. If you've got your Bible, shift over to Jonah chapter 4 and look with me in these opening verses of Jonah chapter 4. Again, God has called Jonah in. Jonah has called the people of Nineveh to repentance. And as The Apostle Paul writes, God's kindness has led them to repentance. They've repented. We pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this, their repentance is this. This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I prayed to you, Lord? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to foretell by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate. God, darn you. Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah had missed a grander vision for his own life. And he was simply hoping to find fulfillment in something less. He got the stuff on the outside right, he did the spiritual retreat. He did three days of solitude. Three whole days. Who can actually do three days? He did it. But he wasn't different. The same is true of you and me. We need a grander vision for our lives. One that's quick to lean in. To the easy yoke of Jesus. One that is slow to resent God. For his unfailing love. Toward others. One that is as focused on inner transformation. As it is in getting the visible behaviors right. One that allows our soul to be stirred. Knowing it will leave us different. If we will cooperate with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in us. You see, Jonah's time had, time on the run had not led him to a stirring of his soul that led to transformation. Nor had his time in solitude. They had only led him to further focus on himself. Getting all the outward stuff right with the inner withering away. Oh, kills. I am obviously Not your pastor. I don't have the striking jawline for it that Mikey has. (laughs) I don't have a lot of things that Mikey has. But I have pastored in your city for a good number of years now. And believe it or not, in my church, I'm the old guy. So if you would indulge me for a moment and allow me to be pastoral with and to and for you. You have led the way in spiritual formation and local and global mission for decades. Leaders like myself among the NAB are so grateful for your partnership in the ways in which you have sent the gospel out all around the world. Ways in which you have even entrusted your founding pastor to this movement we call the North American Baptist Conference. To help spread the word that congregations can actually be transformed into the likeness of Christ. For decades, you have invited your people and people who would read your story into a grander vision for their own life. No question, you have thrown yourself into the sea for the sake of those around you. No question... And no doubt that you have entered the belly of the whale. In fact, you kind of wrote the book on it, the renovation of the church, did you not? You have with integrity and with intention walked into very difficult discussions. What's the but, Stu? (laughs) Well, the but is, you're still a community of faith made up of human beings. Who are fallible. Who have at times found yourself asleep in the bottom of the ship. No idea that a storm outside was raging. Maybe you're in the whale right now. And you're just trying to survive. But God's trying to actually transform you. Maybe you're actually in your own Nineveh. And you're speaking up. But the evidence of God's will and his way in your life will always be clear when you slump down after the shade of God's good provision has withered and with your Nineveh in full view, you utter some sort of prayer along the lines of what Jonah prayed at the end of chapter 4. Jonah said, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. I don't know if your words have mirrored those at times. But I have to believe, like the people in my church, that there have come times where God has approached you about something in your soul that He longed to transform. And your response to Him was, God, I would rather die than see that change. I would rather die than have my politics change. I would rather die than have to give up that soapbox. I would rather die than fill in the blank. In the weeks and months to come, your leaders have created a number of environments and groups this fall. Intended to open up space for you to enter the belly of the whale to be transformed. Transformed. So you can intentionally step into your Nineveh with a stirred soul joining God. You'll find signups all along the back tables for those groups and their leaders, I believe, are also available for you. But make no mistake, entering into these groups are not the Nineveh where you're finally going to go change their mind in the group to align with yours. Your goal in that group is to enter the belly of the whale. And actually to be changed. To sacrifice your position. To lay down your argument. To give up your position. As churches all across Folsom and all around the world continue to look to you for leadership in the areas of missional engagement and spiritual formation... My prayer for you is that your next decade would be marked by a continued courage and Christ-like presence in difficult discussions. That you would relentlessly be present in the relational may you that will be required in engaging in your own Nineveh. My prayer, kills for you in your next decade is that you would lean back in the shade And that you would not be satisfied with the church you have been. Hoping somehow that others would finally come to your side of the fence. or Worse yet, hoping that their brand of church fails. Proving that you've gotten it right. My prayer for you, Oak Hills, is that you continue as you always have to seek relentlessly the heart of God as he calls you into Nineveh, that when you arrive, you would be the embodiment of the good news that Jesus Christ saves and the Holy Spirit transforms. So whether your plant withers or whether your city repents, that it would always be well with your soul because you have joined God in what he was up to. God bless you, Oak Hills. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, you are good, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. May this community of faith continue to be a bright light in this city and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.